The day was December 23rd, 1849. A young man, age 28, had just spent four months in the Peter and Paul Fortress in St. Petersburg. This prison housed the most dangerous convicts in Russia. The prisoner was told that morning that he had been sentenced to death by firing squad. The Russian troops brought him out to Semyonova Palace. The prisoner saw the soldiers carrying the guns. He glimpsed the poles where he was to be tied up and shot at. He looked at his two companions, who were going to suffer the same fate. He heard the crowds roaring and the sound of a military drum. He prepared to die. At the last moment, however, a creaky cart wheeled by a horse emerged onto the square. The cart was carrying a note from the Tsar. The lieutenant opened up the letter and then stared into the eyes of the soldiers. He folded the letter up and gave a mischievous smile. It's your lucky day, boys, he said. The Tsar has decided that instead of executing you, you will instead be sentenced to eight years of hard labor in Siberia. How did the young prisoner feel in this instance? The moment has been depicted in a poem by the German-Jewish writer Stefan Zweig. Zweig writes, the blood in his veins becomes red once more, elevates and begins very quietly to sing. Death hesitatingly crawls away from his frozen limbs, and his eyes sense, though still blanketed in darkness, that the greeting of eternal light has surrounded them. The prisoner was Fyodor Mikhailovich Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky would later become one of the greatest Russian novelists of all time, known best for his novels Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, and The Brothers Karamazov. But that would all come later, in the 1860s and 1870s, long after his eight years of imprisonment in Siberia. This moment of near execution marked a turning point in Dostoevsky's worldview. Why had he been arrested and sentenced to death? because he had been a revolutionary. He was an atheist, he was a socialist. He wanted to destroy the Russian monarchy and the Russian Orthodox Church. He wrote short stories for political journals which advocated overthrowing the political status quo and heralding a new age of equality for all. In his eight years of imprisonment in Siberia, Dostoevsky's worldview would completely reverse. He swore off all of his revolutionary and socialist views he no longer wished to overthrow Russia, but instead to affirm it, to become her greatest patriot. He became repulsed by his atheism and became instead a devout worshiper of the Russian church. 
The change was, we might say, a bit odd. Usually, when revolutionaries are thrown into prison, it only makes them more radical and more determined to bring down the social order. The Russian state had traumatized Dostoevsky by almost executing him, and then it sent him into Siberia for eight years. Why would Dostoevsky choose to make this same actor, the Russian government, now the object of his worship and devotion? Moreover, God had arguably, arguably not been so good to Dostoevsky either. Yet, Dostoevsky now had become passionately religious. He decided to love God and believe in God, even though God had sent him into Siberian exile. When I first read Dostoevsky, I, like most young people, felt pretty cool about myself. I didn't know anything about Dostoevsky, of course. All I knew is that if I sat reading a giant Dostoevsky book in the middle of a cafe, I would be sure to impress onlookers. Dostoevsky, I thought, knowing absolutely nothing about him. He is surely the king of rebellion, nihilism, anarchy, atheism. He is cool, badass. But in a perverse twist of history, Dostoevsky actually represents the opposite of all of these things. When I actually read his books, I realized that he sounded more like your conservative grandfather than some hip young radical. To this day, I hear young people all the time saying how much they love Dostoevsky. Yet, these are often the same folks who laugh at the idea of God or who mock old-fashioned and stuffy conservatives. I think to myself, have they been reading the same Dostoevsky that I have? Dostoevsky's later novels all tell more or less the same story. There is always a young protagonist who is basically the former Dostoevsky before his conversion in Siberia. This protagonist is educated, elitist, atheist, socialist. He thinks Russia and God are both hilarious jokes. But Dostoevsky shows how these subversive modern beliefs do not bring the protagonist happiness. Instead, they make him miserable, lonely, alienated. Along the way, the protagonists invariably meet and fall in love with a prostitute who reads to them some passage out of the Bible. Eventually, the protagonist realizes that if he were only to turn to Christianity, if he were only to learn to love the Russian soil and his fellow Russian peasant, he would achieve inner peace. Again, not very cool sounding. But there's one thing about Dostoevsky that does situate him with all of the other hit philosophers and writers like Kierkegaard, Kafka, Camus, Sartre, and Hesse. Nietzsche once said, for example, about Dostoevsky, that he was, quote, the only psychologist from whom I ever learned something, unquote. When Dostoevsky's protagonists decide to embrace religion and Mother Russia, they do so while simultaneously throwing up the middle finger to rationality, science, and elitism. They basically humbly admit to themselves, I'm not as clever as I think I am. Sure, maybe religion doesn't make any sense, but somehow it works. These modern ideas, while perhaps rational, can explain the infinite complexity of human existence. Perhaps I'm more educated than that peasant over there stealing a potato, but I can learn more about life from him than from my elitist professor. A fancy way of saying this is that Dostoevsky and his protagonists take a leap of faith. They basically say to themselves, there's so much in life that I don't understand. That makes it seem like there could never be a God or never be justice. I am aware of all these doubts, and yet I am going to believe anyway, 
even if I can't explain to myself or to others why. An even fancier term for this mode of thought is Christian existentialism. And Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard, who thought similarly, are seen as the first existentialists. This belief in faith and in the pointlessness of hyper-rationality is what connects Dostoevsky with later proud atheists like Camus, Sartre, and Nietzsche. Even though Nietzsche, Camus, and Sartre were adamant that there was no God, they still are, in the same way, saying the same thing as Dostoevsky. How is this possible? What connects them all is that they all operate under the premise that, in the modern world, God is dead and we have killed him. And they all attempt to answer the question, how do we live in a world in which God is dead? Why should we be moral? Why should we not be nihilists? And their answer is always of the same ilk. We must find a God which is based in our feeling and faith and not in rationality. Because if we view things purely through reason alone, life becomes absurd and there is no point of having morality. For Dostoevsky, this new God was Jesus and the Russian Orthodox Church. For Nietzsche, this new God was the Übermensch, the person who would create new values which society could live by. For Camus, the new God was the rebel, who would continue to push the rock up the hill every day, even though he knew it would roll back down again. I'm not sure about Sartre. I'll have to get back to you on that one. All of these thinkers learned to embrace the, the absurdity of existence and to find their own meaning within it, rather to pretend like the absurdity isn't there and that rationality can explain everything worth knowing. In Franz Kafka's 1914 novel, The Trial, a 30-year-old banker named Joseph K. wakes up to find himself under arrest. Two men in suits are standing in his bedroom. They inform him that he has been arrested. A few weeks ago in episode 43, I talked about Joseph K. and this novel, The Trial. The novel sets up two systems of law, state law and then a higher, inaccessible law. When Joseph K. is arrested, his first response is to say that he hasn't broken any laws. But it becomes clear that Joseph K. has been arrested by another court. We might say he has been arrested by this higher court of laws which go beyond mere state law. Maybe this is religious law, divine law, whatever. The important thing is that it is definitely not state law. In episode 43, I talked about how, in 1871, Germany crafted a new legal code which sought to remove concepts of religion, God, and morality from law. The 1871 code was heralded in Germany and in Western countries as a masterwork of jurisprudence. It was so precise, so organized, so all-encompassing that it became its own sort of Bible. And so, Joseph K. believed that he could see himself as moral by adhering to state law and forgetting about a more divine morality. But there is, in fact, a lot more going on with Joseph K., which Kafka clues us into. Who is Joseph K.? He's not just some guy who follows state law. Kafka gives us many clues of his personality that we should take note of. He is 30. He is a banker. He is a bachelor. He lives in a penthouse apartment. He wears expensive suits to work. He visits a prostitute once a week. He is stylish. He spends his evenings in swanky bars and clubs. If you've ever seen Orson Welles' film, 
from 1962, The Trial, then you can see Joseph K. for yourself. He is played by Anthony Perkins, and he nails the part. He wears a white button-down shirt in the first scene. His hair is neatly parted to the side. Of course, he has no facial hair. Today, we would call Joseph K. a yuppie, perhaps a bourgeois. We have talked about what Joseph K. is, but it's even more important to say what he is not. He is not a family man. He is not connected with any particular culture or nationality. He is not religious. In short, he's not really anything. He's just kind of there. Put another way, he is the product of a world in which God has died and nothing has come to replace him. But in fact, I shouldn't say nothing has come to replace God. Rather, it's just that what has come instead is meager, insufficient, unsatisfying, deadening. Joseph K. in the post-God world tries to find satisfaction in dressing well, going out in the evenings, decorating his apartment, succeeding at his job, following the laws of his state, no more, no less. This is his new religion. It is not fulfilling, it is not meaningful, it is not exciting, but it provides him with just enough pleasure and direction that it's something he can at least latch on to. Meanwhile, Joseph K. has been arrested. Even though the court which arrests him does not throw him in jail or handcuff him or do anything to restrict his life, Kay still wishes to be declared innocent by the court. The novel culminates in the famous scene in the cathedral. Kay has come to the cathedral to give a tour to an Italian colleague of the bank where he works. Kafka fills the scene with evidence that, in Kay's world, God is dead. Notably, the scene takes place in a church, but Joseph K. is not there to pray, but rather to view it as a tourist site. The church square is empty and the interior is dark. Joseph K. walks inside the church. From a distance, he is spotted by a priest. The priest asks him if he is holding a Bible in his hand. K. says that it is not a Bible, but a tourist guidebook. The priest tells K. to lay it down, and K. throws it to the floor. As it turns out, the priest is not only a priest, but also works for the court which has arrested Kay. Remember, all Kay wants is to be judged innocent so that he can put his trial behind him and return to his former life. But the more he tries to argue his case, the more he seeks assistance from others, the deeper entrenched he becomes in his trial. And it is no different with the priest. In this scene, Kay and the priest have a long conversation about Kay's trial. Kay asks the priest dozens of questions. Yet for each question asked, the priest does not give an answer, but just gives another question instead. The more Kay speaks with the priest about his trial, the further and further away he becomes from ever being declared innocent, whatever that should mean. The scene in the cathedral culminates, where Kay suddenly realizes that he needs to get back to work. The, the cathedral is now entirely dark. The lamp Kay had been carrying has long since gone out. The priest tells Kay, go. Go, go back to work. Kay responds very significantly, but I cannot find my way in the dark alone. Isn't there anything you might still want from me? The priest responds, why should I want anything from you? I belong to the court and the court wants nothing from you. It receives you when you come and releases you when you go. Many Kafka scholars see perhaps the entire novel summed up in this final exchange between Joseph Kay and the priest. 
Joseph K. cannot handle the darkness. He is terrified to live in a world without God. But rather than embrace this freedom, he clings to poisonous pathways. He clings to thinking, to his bourgeois lifestyle, to rationality. And most importantly, these are all choices K. makes. He chooses to cling rather than choosing to let go. As the priest says, the court wants nothing from him. It receives him when he comes and releases him when he goes. So to return to my earlier question, who is Joseph K? He is an anti-Ubermensch. He is an anti-Dostoevskian hero. The Ubermensch and the Dostoevskian hero embrace the freedom of a post-God world. In the case of Nietzsche's Ubermensch, this hero constructs new values in the void of a world in which God is dead. In the case of the Dostoevskian hero, this hero believes in God anyway, in spite of the thousands of rational reasons not to believe. Both fling themselves into the darkness, whereas Joseph K. cowers before the darkness, but nevertheless cannot look away. The Parsha for this week, Nitzavim, is rather short, only about 40 verses. Nevertheless, it contains some of the most powerful, significant, and packed lines in the entire Torah. Throughout the Torah, specifically throughout the final book of Deuteronomy, Moshe has told the Hebrews that, essentially, they'd better follow the laws or else they'll be punished. Moshe's tone throughout is that, you must do what I say, you must. In last week's episode, I argued that Moshe wanted to push the Hebrews to think for themselves, to not allow themselves to be brainwashed into crowd mentality thinking before entering the promised land. This week, he will take this premise one step further. After giving the Hebrews this long list of laws and commandments, which they absolutely must follow, he says to them, in fact, that it's their choice. It is their choice. He says in chapter 30, verses 19 and 20, quote, I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your children may live by, through your love of God, hearing his voice and holding on to him tightly, unquote. For pages and pages, Moshe spoke with absolute authority. Now he sounds humble, more as though he is giving a desperate plea. Please do this. You don't have to do it. I know you might not do it, but please just do it. We cannot properly analyze these verses without looking at two other statements from Moshe. Let us go back about eight verses earlier, chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Moshe says, These laws are not so puzzling for you. They are not too far away from you to understand. They are not in the heavens. They are not beyond the sea. It is all very close to you, in your heart and in your mouth, for you to observe them. We must now look at one more verse, chapter 29, verse 28. Moses says, to paraphrase, that there are certain acts which are concealed and hidden, which only God can know. Then there are other acts which are open for us to discover and for us to apply these acts to ourselves and to our children. Let us recap for a moment in reverse order. Moshe tells the Hebrews that it is their choice if they want to follow these laws and that they should, but by no means must, choose to follow, choose life. Moses also says that the laws are here within your grasp to understand on earth. And finally, Moses says that there are some things 
you can't know about the universe, but other things which are waiting to be discovered by you. These three verses fit together like, forgive the metaphor, Torah, German literature, and meditation. Moses is saying that there will always be doubts about why you are following these laws and why you are believing. Because the most essential things about the universe will always be hidden to you, you can never know them. You must continually choose how you live and what way of life you conduct. But notably, Moses emphasizes that the laws are already here for us to discover. He does not say, just have faith, just believe. Instead, he says, discover as much about the universe as you can on your own. And then, when you reach the boundaries of human knowledge, choose belief, choose to follow. I think we are finally ready to return to Dostoevsky and his metamorphosis from rebellious socialist atheist to proud Russian Christian. It is relatively easy to understand how and why Dostoevsky found God and decided to become a devout Christian, even though he acknowledged that it was an absurd belief. He took the leap of faith, and this idea of taking a leap of faith has now become almost a cliche in our society. Just have faith, you've got to have faith, and so forth. But what is less discussed and less understood is why Dostoevsky simultaneously became a proud Russian patriot and fully immersed himself in Russian traditions and peasant culture. How does having faith and connecting with your roots and traditions coalesce? For Dostoevsky, Russian culture was his version of the mitzvot, the laws of the Torah. It was something which he could visualize, but also needed to choose. He believed that by implanting himself within his traditions, he would be better able to take his leap of faith. Choosing Russian folk culture over, say, anarchy also required a kind of leap, a kind of faith in absurdity. Just as the Hebrews could not understand the reason for all the tr traditions and laws, Dostoevsky likely had many doubts about the merits of Russian folk life. But this was, nevertheless, a culture, a culture which had been handed down to him over the centuries, which had ancient wisdom intertwined with it, and which was, most importantly, the only culture Dostoevsky had. In the trial, we often focus on this scene in which Joseph K. stands in the darkness and says to the priest, I cannot find my way in the dark alone. As readers, we think to ourselves, just take the leap of faith, K. Just jump into the void and let go. Let go, let go, we think. Indeed, in episode 12 of The Shrift, I said that Joseph K. could not make this leap because he was not an ubermensch. He was too weak to do so. But when we analyze Joseph K. in this manner, we leave out half the story. Kafka depicts Joseph K. in a very specific and deliberate way. Joseph K. is not a bot or a widget. He is a young man, a young banker, who has no traditions, customs, community to which to turn. He has replaced the ancient laws of his culture with the new laws of the 1871 code. He has replaced them with flimsy new customs and life habits. Instead of going to a church to pray, he goes instead to take a tour. Instead of having children and raising a family, he goes out to nightclubs and cigar bars. Instead of celebrating holidays, he goes shopping. This is why Moshe discusses choosing to follow the day-to-day -day laws and believing in that which you cannot fathom all in the same breath. Traditions, customs, and ordinances may seem a bit odd to us, maybe even absurd, but they are here with us. 
They are not across the sea or in the skies. If we choose to follow them, we will better be better situated and better placed to make the more important choice, the choice to believe in that which we cannot truly comprehend, that which is beyond human knowledge. This also brings us to both a gift and a curse in how meditation and yoga are practiced today. Meditation and yoga have the same transcendental goals as Judaism and Dostoevsky's Christianity. As I discussed in episode 21, the word yoga means to yoke together, to join, to join together body and soul, the physical and metaphysical world. What is beautiful about yoga and meditation is that they are not just beliefs, but practices. You must physically do yoga and do meditation in order to experience that which you cannot see and cannot understand. But yoga and meditation also stem from rich traditions dating back millennia. In order to derive the full transcendental benefits of these practices, you should become familiar with the ancient customs and ancient culture surrounding them. To truly meditate, to truly yoke together body and soul, you need to go to the Holy Land. You need to travel to India. Thank you.